Welcome to the Pine Ridge House Sermon Podcast. We are a church located in Calgary, Alberta, and the Bible is our standard for all faith and practice. You are listening to our ongoing study of Genesis. Chapter 39 and beginning to read in verse 1. <clears throat> now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an Egyptian officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the bodyguard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, so he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. Now his master saw that the Lord was with him and how the Lord caused all that he did to prosper in his hand. So Joseph found favor in the sight and became his personal servant, and he made him overseer over his house, and all that he owned he put in his charge. It came about that from, t- from the time he made him overseer in his house and over all that he owned, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house on account of Joseph. Thus the Lord's blessing was upon all that he owned, in the house and in the field. So he left everything in his charge. <clears throat> and, with him, and with him there he did not concern himself with anything except the food which he ate. Now Joseph was handsome in form and appearance, and it came about after these events that his master's wife looked with desire at Joseph, and she said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, with me here my master does not concern himself with anything in the house, and he has put all that he owns in my charge. There is no one greater in this house than I, and he has has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do this great evil and sin against God? As she spoke to Joseph day after day, he did not listen to her, lie beside her, or be with her. Now it happened one day that he went into the house to do his work, and none of the men of the household was there inside. She caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. And he left his garment in her hand and fled and went outside. When she saw that she had left, that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled outside, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought in a Hebrew to us to make sport of us. He came in to lie with me, and I screamed. When he heard that I raised my voice and screamed, he left his garment beside me and fled and went outside. So she left his garment beside her until his master came home. Then she spoke to him with these words. The Hebrew slave whom you brought to us came into lie, came, into, came to me to make sport of me. And as I raised up my voice and screamed, he left his garment beside me and fled outside. Let's pray. Lord, this morning we look to a story that happened hundreds and hundreds of years ago, but it's a story that is repeated many times in our culture and in this land in different kinds of ways. And so this story is not ancient, it is contemporary. And it's also contemporary because you made sure this got put in the Bible for us to read, because there's much in here for us to learn. And so this morning, Lord, as we take our cues from your word, from your truth, would you transform the way we think? transform the way we live in accordance with your word. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. And you may be seated. So we're back uh, to the story of Joseph. Uh, We took a break from him in chapter 38. We talked about Judah and Tamar, but we're back to Joseph now. But you remember back in, in chapter 37 when we left off with Joseph, he was a younger guy. He was 17 years of age, and uh, he was pretty immature back then. Uh, He was a little bit, well, not a little bit, he was a tattletale. Uh, He was a tattletale to his dad uh, about his brother's bad behavior. And he also revealed his dreams to his brother, showing himself to be superior in position, which was the fact, and it did actually happen, 
But God never told him he needed to tell his brothers this. And so now, did Joseph do anything wrong by, you know, by telling on his brothers or by telling them about his dreams? He didn't do anything wrong, but certainly he lacked maturity back then. He was an immature guy, just 17 years of age. But as Joseph grew up, and as he began to get older, his faith became very strong. And that's the Joseph we find here in chapter 39. But as we pick up his story in verse 1, he has just been sold a second time in a slave trade. You can read it there. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an Egyptian officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the bodyguard, bought him. He bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. This is the second time that he has been sold, and now he's in slavery. Now, when Potiphar picked up this new slave, little did he know the kind of impact this was going to have on his life. Maybe it was a steal of a deal. We don't know what he paid for it. But it wasn't so much about what he paid for Joseph as it was because God was with Joseph. And by God being with Joseph, it had this cumulative effect on everybody around him. We pick this up there in verse 2 to 4. It says, The Lord was with Joseph, so, so here's the reason, so he became a successful man. And he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. Now his master saw that the Lord is with him and how the Lord caused all that he did to prosper in his hand. So Joseph found favor in his sight and became his personal servant, and he made him oversee over his house, and all that he owned he put in his charge. Whatever points are trying to be made in this text in chapter 39, one point is clear that's being made over and over again. God was with Joseph. God was with Joseph. We just read it twice there in verses 2 and 3. But if you skip down, we didn't read it, but if you skip down to verse 21, this is after he'd been thrown into prison. It says this, But the Lord was with Joseph and extended kindness to him and gave him favor in the sight of the chief jailer. After he'd been thrown into prison, now he's found favor in the sight of the chief jailer. But again in verse, 30, uh, verse 23, the chief jailer did not supervise anything under Joseph's charge because, here's the reason why, the Lord was with him and whatever he did the Lord made to prosper. Specifically, the Lord was with Joseph so that he became a successful man. Now, the hard part for us as readers is when we read this kind of thing, that the Lord was with Joseph, it gets difficult for us because at this point in time, he is a slave. He has been kidnapped, he is a slave, and he is not allowed to go back to his family. And later on, when we pick it up in verse 21, God is still with Joseph, and yet he had been accused unjustly, and he's sitting in a prison cell. And just in case you think that Joseph is okay with all of this, look a little bit further down uh, in chapter 40, uh, chapter 40 and verse 15. This is his own testimony, Joseph's testimony. For I was in fact kidnapped from the land of the Hebrews, and even here I've done nothing that they should have put me into this dungeon. He says, that's been my story. I was kidnapped, sold into slavery twice, and right now I'm in prison. So to think that, oh, the Lord's with me, so everything's just perfectly fine, and I, it's no problem being in these situations, it's not right. Joseph doesn't like it, and it's hard for him. But for us, when we read that God's with him, we might assume that when God's with us, all of our circumstances are going to be great. Joseph was sold into slavery, wrongfully put into prison, and yet the text says God was with him. 
Now, to say that God is with you when you're in the midst of difficult circumstances is not a contradiction. It is not a contradiction. Circumstantial heaven on earth is not what it means for God to be with us. Circumstantial heaven on earth is not what it means for God to be with us. Now, there's some people who've come to this conclusion, and they've left God altogether. Two of my friends have left God because that's the conclusion they'd come to. They'd come to the conclusion that if God is with me, then my circumstances in life ought to be better than they are, and so they abandon God. That's a misunderstanding of God. We do not become shielded from oppression. We do not become shielded from injustice when God is in our life. But we are promised that God will be with us. You remember Jesus, after he had, uh, after he had been resurrected, he brought his, uh, his disciples around him. And you remember as he was talking to them, and he's now in his resurrected state, and he's talking to them just before he left the earth. And he said to this to them, I promise I will be with you. He says, I'll never leave you. I am going to be with you. I'm never going to leave you. That's the promise he gave. The problem is, is that Jesus was just about to leave the earth. He was just about to leave the earth. And after he left the earth, the disciples, when they were promised Jesus would be with them, went through what? Through beatings, from rejection, being thrown out of the temple, being thrown out of synagogues, in all kinds of hardship. And yet Jesus said this, I will never leave you. You know that you will now know that I will be with you in the midst of all of this. It's the same promise that God gives to us. Romans chapter 8 makes it very clear. Nothing can separate us from the love of God, not persecution, not hardship, not difficulty, not height, nor depth, nor angels, nor demons. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. He is with us. Regardless of the kind of hardship you're facing, and I don't know, maybe some of you are facing some difficulty even here this morning, Jesus has promised this thing, I will never leave you. I'll never leave you. And even though God is not with us here physically, he is with us in our own spirit. Psalm 73 says this, Besides you, I desire nothing. I am continually with you, and you have taken hold of my hand. You have taken hold of my right hand. And when God is with us, we can make it through all kinds of hardship. We can make it through anything the world hands us because he's with us. It's kind of like, reminds me of my grandkids because everything reminds me of my grandkids these days. <laughs> um, my, grand, my grandkids, they go through all kinds of hardship. All kinds of hardship. Their toys get stake, taken from them, and then they trip and fall all the time. And they're always skinning their knees or bruises or something. Sometimes we don't even know where it happens. Uh, they get a big bruise. We don't know where it happens. But they go through all kinds of hardship. But it is amazing what a hug will do. When that kid's crying in hardship, and you pick that kid up, and you give him a hug, the tears seem to go away. The tears seem to go away. My... Uh, my granddaughter, Noah, these days, she, um, she's not great with vocabulary yet, so she's trying to describe what's happened when she goes through hardship. And so she has the term, yeah, she, she, the term she's got that down. So she'll go, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so she'll describe everything. So yeah, and so she's pointing to her knee, and then she'll point to the situation where it happened. And yeah, yeah, yeah. And so she's, but as the tears are coming, and they're just now beginning to fade, she's just describing all that's gone on. But she feels comforted and reaffirmed why. Because mom or dad, or sometimes grandma or grandpa, were holding her, and everything's okay. Everything's okay. Because it's reaffirming to them that someone is going to go through this with you. That's what God promises us. You're not going to go through any of this alone. Yes, you live in a fallen world. And yes, you live around people who are going to do hard and mean things to you. 
But Jesus says, I will be with you. I'm not going anywhere. God says, I will be with you. I'm not going anywhere. And so Joseph, in his circumstances, he'd been kidnapped. He'd been sold into slavery, wrongfully thrown into prison. Yet the text can still say that God was with him. It's not a contradiction. He could get through oppression. He could get through injustices because God was with him. Now, the hand of the Lord was not only on his life, it had a cumulative kind of an effect on those around him. We just read about it. It had a cumulative effect on his master and his master's house. So much so. Now, we don't know exactly what he saw, but he understood that God's hand was on Joseph. He understood this. And so he put Joseph in charge of everything in his house, everything in his house he was in charge of. He had a clear, visible effect on those around him, but this Potiphar, he didn't understand this as just being by chance. He understood that God somehow was doing this. It was clear to him that God was in his life, and as a result, it was making his life better. It was making Potiphar's life better. But this is the kind of thing with all godly people. Godly people make the lives of those around them better. Godly people always make the lives around them better. In fact, I would say this to you. You cannot be a genuine Christian and not make the, lives around, make the lives of those around you better. You cannot call yourself a genuine Christian if you are not making the lives around you better. Why not? Because the Bible says, here's what it is to be a Christian. You're not thinking about yourself. You're not thinking about yourself. You're thinking about God first, and you're thinking about others second. And when you're thinking about others second, you're thinking about their interest above your own. When you're doing that, you bless their lives, and they like having you around. That's what it is to be a follower of Jesus. You make the lives of the people around you better. I was having a a conversation with a friend of mine, a pastor friend of mine this past week, and he said, well, how do you reconcile the fact that in John 17, Jesus says, well, the world's going to hate you. The world's going to hate you. But then in Acts chapter 5, it says, but the people around you are going to hold you in very high esteem. So how do you reconcile the two of those together? How can Christians both be hated at times and yet held in high esteem at other times? Well, we are held in high esteem when we bump shoulders with regular secular people in life because we're looking to their interests. However, however, that appreciation can quickly shift if their morality is challenged by our lives. As soon as their morality gets challenged directly or indirectly by our lives, they change. I've known this personally, and I'm sure many of you have known this as well. If you correct a wise man, he'll love you. If you correct a scoffer, he will hate you. The lives of secular people in this world do not want their morality challenged. They don't want it directly, and they don't want it indirectly. If you're taking their interests above yourself, they'll love you. No problem. But if somehow, some way, their lives get challenged, their morality gets challenged directly or indirectly, they will now turn on you, and they turn on you in a heartbeat. Potiphar's wife was not directly corrected in the text, but certainly indirectly. And that's when she, she turned on him, and she accused him of attempted rape. Look at it there in verse 14. This is the, guy, this is the woman who day after day wanted to be with this man. Well, let's have sexual relations together. Day after day she wants this. And when her morality then gets exposed, and now she's kind of rejected, she turns on him in a heartbeat. Chapter, uh, verse 14, she says this, See, he has brought this Hebrew to us to make sport of us. He came in to lie with me, and I screamed. 
had nothing to do with what happened. But she can't stand him anymore. Her morality's been exposed, and she's been rejected, and so now she turns on him. But the morality of Joseph was not like this woman's. The morality of Joseph was very different. And Joseph, on his part, was apparently quite irresistible to the regular woman. He was quite irresistible. It says here that Joseph was successful. It says that uh, he had an admirable character, was good-looking of form and appearance. What more could you want in a man? Isn't that right, honey? <laughs> and not so. I do like that the Bible, though, I do like that the Bible talks and speaks about those who are described as being beautiful of form and appearance. It talks about it. It says it. You remember the description that was also given to Rachel. Remember when we went through Rachel? Rachel is also described as beautiful of form and appearance. The Bible doesn't have a problem with this. The Bible doesn't have a problem describing a person who stands out as being in great shape and looking particularly attractive. But the problem comes when that's the only way we either see ourselves or that's the only way we see other people. When that becomes the essence of who a person is, who I believe I am, or who I believe other people are, that's when it becomes a problem. Some of you will, be, will remember uh, this was a problem with some of the women uh, in Isaiah's time. Uh, you don't have to turn there right now. Uh, I'll turn there quick, be, and don't be impressed because I've got a little marker here, so I can turn there very quickly. And I turned to the wrong one. <laughs> so much for my impression. Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 3 talks about women, talks about women in, the, in those days who were having a problem because they were identifying who they were simply by their outward appearance. This is Isaiah chapter 3, if you're taking notes. Isaiah chapter 3, and reading there in verse 16. This is what it says. Moreover, the Lord has said, Because the daughters of Zion are proud, and walk with their heads held high, and seductive eyes, and go along with mincing steps, and tingle the bangles on their feet. Further down, verse 18. In that day, the Lord will take away the beauty of their anklets, their headbands, their crescent ornaments, their dangling earrings, bracelets, veils, headdresses, ankle chains, sashes, perfume boxes, amulets, finger rings, nose rings, festive robes, outer tunics, cloaks, money purses, hand mirrors, undergarments, turbans, and veils. What is it talking about there? It's women who are all about themselves. They're all about the way that they look on the outside, and that's their identity. This is, can be a very... Um, this can be a very prolific problem with women. And so when we get to the New Testament, uh, places like 1 Peter chapter 3, it makes it very clear. God says, don't let your adornment, he's talking to women, don't let your adornment be merely external, but let it be the internal person of the heart. That's the quality that God is looking for. And so when women, when they cave to this temptation to make their identity about themselves on the outside, it's all about the way they look. And it's all about the way that they believe that they are being perceived by other men. Men, when we cave to the temptation of seeing women only externally, we commit what's called in the Bible mental adultery. Mental adultery. Mental adultery is where a married man imagines themselves with a woman who is not their wife. Mental adultery is when a man, a married man, imagines himself with a woman uh, who is not his wife. 
So that's the problem. There's a problem on both sides. There's the women, when they get into this problem, they'll attract any man. Doesn't matter. I just need to attract men because they need to establish who I am by my appearance. That's a problem for women. The problem for men is when they see women that way. So you've got the, both these things are working against each other. And Joseph, on his part, uh, was apparently quite attractive. So it's a little bit reversed here. It's not as common, but it's a little reversed here. The woman here, Potiphar's wife, saw Joseph as being very attractive. Again, admirable character, good-looking of form, appearance, etc. Verse 10 said that she comes after him every single day. Day after day, she's coming at him. And again, the woman going after a man, maybe you think, is not so uncommon, but the Bible does speak about this happening. It speaks about this happening, if you're taking notes, in particular in Proverbs chapter 5. Proverbs chapter 5, I want to read you, if you, you can just take, jot this down and you can read it later if you like. But Proverbs chapter 5, and this is verses, um, where am I going? Verses 3 to 6. The lips of an adulteress drip honey, and smoother than oil is her speech. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps take hold of Sheol. Then in chapter 7, it talks about this a bit more. For at the window of my house, I looked out through the lattice, and I saw among the naive, and discerned among the youths, a man, a young man, lacking sense. Passing through the street near her house, this is the house of the adulterer, the prostitute, passing near her house, her corner, and he takes the way to her house. And in the twilight, in the evening, in the middle of the night, and in the darkness, and behold, a woman comes to meet him, dressed as a harlot and cunning of heart. She is boisterous and rebellious. Her feet do not remain at home. She goes, goes on to talk about what she's doing as she's already married with her husband, but he is gone. Further on in verse 21, it says this, with her many persuasions, she entices him. With her flattering lips, she seduces him. And suddenly he follows her. As an ox goes to slaughter, or as one in fetters to the discipline of a fool, until an arrow pierces through his liver, as a bird hastens to the snare, so he does not know it will cost him his life. He does not know it will cost him his life. Joseph as he's referring to this offer, this seducer, this adulteress, as he's talking about this offer that is put on the table, he calls it a great evil. And he says it right to her. I cannot do this great evil. So why is it a great evil? Why is adultery such a great evil to God? Why is it such a bad sin? Well, there are a couple of reasons for this. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 23, the Bible says that you become one person to whomever you've had sex with. You become one person with them. And something happens within a person when they have sexual relations with, the, with another. There is a uniting that happens. There's a uniting that happens. And this bond is only supposed to occur in marriage. But when it occurs with somebody who is already married, this is a great evil with God. A great evil with God. You're already united to a man in marriage. And now you're going to sleep with somebody else and be united to them. And Potiphar's wife was clearly acting as the adulterer here. 
Another reason against adultery is it has the potential to create an unwanted child. And there are many in our society these days who are unwanted children. Unwanted children. Um, this occurs, of course, uh, in pregnancy out of wedlock. And uh, these days, our society has done a great evil by removing these fetuses by killing them off. You want to talk about a great evil of adultery? A greater evil is killing off these children who are inside their mother's womb. But another reason against adultery is that it can create an unwanted child, an unwanted child. And there's many unwanted children in this world. And uh, for those of you who don't know, I am one of those guys. I was an unwanted child, and I was grateful that I was adopted out when I was a, when I was a child to a loving mom and dad who adopted me. But these days, it's easier to get rid of unwanted children. You just kill them off. You just kill them off. So yes, adultery is not a good thing because it has the potential of creating an unwanted child. And you say, oh, we've got all kinds of ways of getting around it. Sure we do. We've got all kinds of medical ways of getting around it. But the act itself is supposed to be the pleasure of a man and woman in marriage. And it's also su supposed to be something that creates offspring. And when you create that offspring, it's supposed to be celebrated. <clears throat> celebrated by who? By mom and dad. And mom and dad can celebrate that if they're united together. If they're not united together and there's some adultery going on, that kid's not going to be wanted. And God does not want children in this world who do not have a loving mom and dad. He does not want that to happen. Anybody who's, who's grown up in a broken home, you know how hard it is. It's very difficult. And those of you who've grown up in a home where mom and dad have stayed together, you have no idea how blessed you are, especially in this country these days. But this woman doesn't care. She doesn't care. All she wants is she wants to have sex. This guy's a good-looking guy. He's successful. Let's just have some fun here. Nobody's here. Nobody's here. Everybody's out this time. <clears throat> She's tried day after day, but nobody's here. Why don't we just sleep together? What I find... Um, really interesting about what I just read from Proverbs is that very last verse. It says, when he goes to this adulterer, he does not know that it will cost him his life. Joseph apparently knew it, but the dumb ox, as men are essentially called here at times when they go after these adulterous women, they're called dumb oxes, and they don't realize it'll cost him his life. A friend of mine um, went through a situation like this where he committed adultery on his wife, and just having a fun time with this other woman, and it cost him his life. He's still alive, but his life is in absolute shambles. And that story can be told over and over and over again. But Joseph, it wasn't just about, um, wasn't just about committing adultery against Potiphar. It was something more for Joseph. Did you pick that up there when we read it at the end of verse 9? Genesis 39 again, at the end of verse 9. There is no one greater in this house than I, and he has not withheld anything from me except you, because you're his wife. How then could I do this great evil and sin against God? How could I do this great evil and sin against God? The whole time he's talking about Potiphar, initially he said, I don't want to do this against Potiphar. But at the very end he says, I don't want to do this against God. For Joseph, this wasn't about Potiphar. This is about a sin that he would have committed against God. And here's the thing with the Bible. When we sin, it is ultimately a sin against God. Yes, there are going to be people around us who are going to be affected negatively. But ultimately, when we sin, we are acting against God. Numbers chapter 5 and verse 6 makes this very clear. It says this, When a man or woman commits any of the sins of mankind... 
they are acting unfaithfully against the Lord. When we sin, we are acting unfaithfully against the Lord. When we act in selfish ways, we are sinning against God because as our creator, he has a way he wants us to live on this planet. And when we choose not to live the way that he wants us to, we sin against him. It's why human beings get this feeling of guilt. It's what Tyler described. It's what all of you described. When you get to, your, get to that place where you're before God and all of your past, all of your selfish action is before him, you feel guilty. What is that? That is not you. That is something that God has placed inside of the human being to feel guilty. You can't turn that off. You can't get rid of it. The only way you get rid of it is if you come before God and you confess it before him. It's God's way of saying this. There's a way I want you to live in this world, and when you choose not to, I'm going to give you something to help you understand that you're not living the way that I'm asking you to as our creator. On the flip side, the Bible says this. When we confess our sin, God will forgive us. Again, getting back to Tyler this morning, that's exactly what happened to Tyler. This sense of feeling this release, this sense of feeling a peace afterwards, that's God releasing you from your sin. And all those who are Christians here, we all have the same story as Tyler. When we confess our sin to God, he takes it away, and there's this feeling that comes over us where we no longer feel guilty of that sin because only God, only he can take away our sin. It does not matter what people think of us. It does not matter. In fact, the, the people of this world, they may have all kinds of conditions in order for them to forgive you. That does not matter to God. What only matters to God is whether or not he forgives you. And that's why for Joseph, he understood this sin was not against Potiphar. Ultimately, it was a sin against God. Now, we know as Christians that if we confess our sin, that God will forgive us of our sin again because he's the only one who can forgive us. And when um, Joseph is in this situation, he understands this as well. But there is no chance that he's going to engage in this. This is a great evil against God. So sin, it's not about what we can get away with. Did you catch that she's really uh, taking this opportunity here? Because nobody's in the house. She's taking this opportunity. I'm not, we're not going to get caught. But for Joseph, it's not about the idea of getting caught. The idea of getting caught by somebody on this planet is irrelevant. Because he knew that when we sin, we sin against God. For Potiphar's wife, it was about pleasure. It was about pleasure not getting caught. For Joseph, it was about sinning against God. And rightly so. Rightly so. Joseph had it right. The Bible makes this clear in Hebrews 4.13. There is no creature, no creature who is hidden from God's sight, but all things are open and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. He watches everything that we do, and we must give an account to him. For Potiphar's wife, she could give a rip. Because it's just about what's going on on this planet. We can do this. We can get away with it. And the temptation table was very, would have been very difficult for Joseph. I mean, extremely difficult. He was in a rough spot because the place that he goes to work every day was where this woman was. Every day as he went to work, there she was again with the temptation. And the guy was single. And this woman was asking for sex day after day. Then a day in particular happens where there's little chance of getting caught. But Joseph understood the limitations, his human limitations, and he understood them well, and we'd be, we would all be good to understand where our limitations are. Joseph knew his limitations, and so he stayed a, a country mile. As much as he could, he stayed away from her. 
Verse 10 says this, he didn't listen to her. He didn't even lie beside her. He would not even be with her. And now it's hard because his job was in her house. And he's trying to avoid her at all costs. It's a good reminder for us. It's not about getting as close to sin as you possibly can. This is not a good idea. Jesus, he warned the disciples against this. He said this, The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. The spirit's willing, but the flesh is weak. We are weak people. And when that kind of temptation gets set in front of you, and Joseph rightly understood this, he's doing everything that he can to walk away from any form of temptation. We are not to think for any moment that we can get really close to sin, and yet we can still get through it. We can still make our way through it. Godly people understand you. Stay away from it. There's um, uh, a marshmallow Stanford study that was done years ago, and I've referred to it, I don't know when the last time, I've referred to it in one of my sermons a while back. But on this marshmallow uh, uh, study that uh, Stanford did, they put a marshmallow on a plate, and they bring a little kid in the room, and the little kid's got this marshmallow on the plate, and uh, it was an empty room. That's all that was in there, essentially a chair, a table, uh, a plate, and a marshmallow. And so they would tell this kid, uh, so here's a marshmallow. If you want, you can eat this. But if you hold on for a few minutes, I'm just leaving for a few minutes. If you hold on for a few minutes, I'm going to bring back another marshmallow, and you can have two. But you have to hold off. So, okay, you understand? Yeah, I get it. So they put the marshmallow there, and, and off they go. And the video, of course, is running the whole time. And that kid, you know, some would take it, and then they, first of all, they, no, I, would, I can't touch it. And then they would kind of touch it, and then and they'd smell it, <laughs> and rub it all around. No, they didn't want to do that. But this notion of how close can I get to this marshmallow? And then eventually, a little, little picking away at it, and some caved. One girl, it was funny, one girl, as the woman saying, now if you hold off, I'll give you another one. As she's saying this, the kid's eating the marshmallow. <laughs> oh, this is perfect. I get it, I get it. They actually followed these kids years later. And the kids who ate the marshmallows right off the bat ended up being, uh, you know, in our society, ended up being like failures. And those who could hold off, they ended up being successful. Interesting. It's all about a marshmallow. You want to know if your kid's going to be successful, just try them out this next week and you'll figure that out. Joseph, he knew. This is not about us getting close to it as possible. He says, I'm not going to be with you. No, I'm not, going to, I'm not even going to lie beside you. I don't even want to talk to you. And on that day, on that day when nobody's there and she grabbed the hold of his garment, he ran. He ran. He fled out of the house. He knew his own limitations. But we know that she didn't really want him for any kind of lasting relationship. She just wanted him, for, wanted him for sex. And when Joseph persevered under temptation, Potiphar's wife, she felt stupid. She felt corrected. She felt rejected. So she turns on him. Why? She doesn't want the guy. This is nothing about a relationship between you and I. So she turns on him, gets him thrown in prison. But the rest of the story is a great story because the Lord's with him. And we'll get into that next week. Um, Again, much more could be said on this chapter, but time is escaping us, so um, maybe we'll stop here and, uh, and we'll pick it up next week. Um, but I do have some uh, lessons for you, as I always do. And these are some of the, um, some of the things that I've picked up from the text that I think uh, will be helpful for us to take away. Again, there's many things that we could take away from this, but uh, I think these will be helpful for you. So here's some, uh, here's some lessons for you. Uh, first of all, 
God is with those who love him. God is with us. He is with those who love him, regardless of any oppression or injustice they might be facing. God is with those who love him. God doesn't leave. When we're in the midst of injustice, and I don't know where you might be facing it, or some kind of oppression, it's not to understand that God now has left, has left us because he is with us and he will never leave us. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. That's why I put Romans 8 in there. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Neither height, nor depth, nor distress, nor tribulations, nor trials, nor angels, nor demons. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. But if you think for a moment that for God to be in my life means that circumstantially I'm going to get heaven on earth, you're misunderstanding God. Just like that little child of yours who's going through hardship. You pick him up and you hold him. And somehow it comforts them. That's what God does with us. Secondly, godly people make the lives of those around them better. That's what we do. It's not because we necessarily want to make their lives better. We're doing it out of our commitment to God. This is what's happened with Tyler. The lives of those around him, his family, those at work, the, the lives of those around him have become better now because Tyler's now walking the way that God wants him to. Christians, that's what happens to us. When we give our lives over to Jesus Christ, our lives become better to those around us because of our relationship with God, and we understand that God wants us to think about others before we think about ourselves. So we don't act selfishly. We, all, we act selflessly. And when you're acting on the interests of the people around you, those people want to have you around. They make your life better. And clearly that's what was going on with Joseph here. He was making the lives of those around him, whether or not it was in the prison cell, whether or not it was in slavery, the lives of those around him got better because he was a godly person. And that's what we do. Christians, that's that's the natural effect of Christianity. Thirdly, all sin is sin against God. All sin is sin against God and creates a separation between humanity and him. Isaiah, I have Isaiah 59, 2 there. It says, um, sin has made a separation between us and God. That's what happens when we sin against God because he, as I told you earlier, he's got a way that he wants us to live in this world. And when we choose not to, that's a sin against God. And in those moments, it creates a separation between us and God. But finally, when we confess that sin to God, he does forgive us. He forgives us and it's gone. It's gone away. It doesn't matter whether or not somebody on this planet forgives us or not. That's not what God... God is the only one who can forgive sin. And so who knows what people, what kinds of... If we were to talk to some people that we have wronged, and I'm sure you have a list like I do in the past, and you say, what would it take for me to be forgiven by you? And who knows what they may come up with? That's not what God says. God says, if you confess your sin to me, if you own your sin in my presence, I will forgive you of it. And so Joseph, he knew that this sin would have been against God. And so he was not going to participate in this at all. This was not about convenience. This is not about why did he get away with. So sin creates a separation between humanity and him, and I've got a number of verses there. But when we confess our sin to God, he forgives us. Thank you for listening to this sermon. For more information on our church or this recording, please contact us at www.pineridgehouse.com.